0: Ahoy, ahoy, lovelies. I'm Valeria, and this is Have Murder, Will Travel. Hey guys, did you have a good week? Good Easter? I wanted to thank everyone for their sweet messages after I put out last week's episode. I was not in any way fishing for compliments or praise or good wishes or anything like that. But it was nice that so many of you reached out. I will reply to the emails. I swear. I finally got on Instagram and saw that people had been concerned and I'm, I'm sorry again. I'm back now. It's fine. Don't think there's anything else to talk about. So let's just dive right in. This week, we're not going to a specific country, But instead, we are talking murder on the high seas. We are going to be talking about the incredible survival tale of Terry Joe Duperalt. I said ahoy at the beginning of the episode because ships. Side note, did you know that Alexander Graham Bell wanted ahoy to be the greeting when we answered the phone? That's your random trivia fact for the day. You're welcome. Let's take it back, back to 1961. My mommy wasn't even born yet. On Monday, November 13th, 1961, a Puerto Rico-bound oil rig called the Gulf Lion was traveling through the Caribbean. Caribbean, Caribbean, who knows? I might switch throughout the episode. I'm chaos. The Gulf Lion was in the middle of nowhere kind of near the Bahamas, when they saw something odd. A small wooden dinghy. A dinghy, if you don't speak ship, is a small boat. They're often used by larger boats to take people to shore or places that the big boat can't fit. They can be rowboats. Some have motors. Some have sails. This particular dinghy had sails, but the sails were not up. They were neatly furled. There was also a life raft tied to the dinghy. There was a man in the dinghy and something in the life raft. Once he was close enough for the gulf lion, he called out, My name is Julian Harvey. I am master of the catch bluebell. I have a dead baby here. I think her name is Terry Joe Duperle. The dead body was actually Terry Joe's little sister, seven-year-old. Renee Duperolt. The Duperoltz had set out on a dream vacation around the Caribbean, and this was the first time anyone had heard of any problems with the ship. Little could anyone have imagined the twisted tale of murder that was about to unfold. Who were the Duperoltz? I'm just going to say, they seemed like a great fucking family. I kept trying to find something wrong with them because they seemed too perfect, but I couldn't find anything. The Duperalt family was husband and father, Arthur Duperalt, wife and mother, Jean, and their three children, 14-year-old Brian, 11-year-old Terry Joe, and 7-year-old Renee. Arthur Duperalt was senior class president and debate champion in high school. He went to Lawrence College, now Lawrence University, but he dropped out in 1942 to join the Navy. This is the height of World War II and U.S. involvement in World War II. He probably would have gotten drafted anyway, so he just joined himself. Arthur was only five foot eight, so at first the Navy didn't want him. I guess they won't take shorter guys. I don't know. It's like in the first Captain America when Bucky gets to join the war and Steve doesn't because he's scrawny or whatever, but then he becomes Captain America. Arthur did not become Captain America, but he did bulk up, and he got really into fitness. He worked out almost every day for the rest of his life. In fact, the whole family was very athletic and active. Once he was in the Navy, he traveled to the Far East while serving as a medical corpsman, and he discovered that he loved the sea. He did very well in the war, received multiple letters of commendation. In 1944, he was given a job at the Pentagon. While there, he met Jean Brosh from Nebraska. Jean was a secretary at FBI headquarters, so you know she knew some shit. She had some tea. The couple were married in December of 1944. Arthur was discharged in November 45, and the couple moved back to Wisconsin. They lived with Arthur's parents while he went to optometry school, which he graduated in 1949. Their first child and only son, Brian, was born in 1947. Arthur opened an optometry practice in Green Bay, and did very well for himself and his family. He was great at his job and quickly became a leader in the Wisconsin Optometry Association. One reason his practice did so well is because he decided to sell an innovative new product, contact lenses. It's funny to think of contacts as being new and innovative, but they must have been at some point. I was not aware that point was the late 40s, early 50s. I never gave it much thought, but if you had asked me, I would have guessed maybe the 70s. Their daughter, Terry Jo, was born in 1950, and the baby of the family, Renee, was born in 1954. The family lived on an acre of wooded grounds. Arthur often told the kids stories of his travels before bed he also told them how he dreamed of taking the entire family sailing. He said, quote, travel is the best education. I think that's so true. When you're exposed to anything outside of your world or your comfort zone, I think it's a good thing. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. Obviously, travel is cost prohibitive for a lot of people. But if you get the chance to go anywhere... Even to a new part of town. Just go. Be fun. Jean was described by many as stunning. She was slender and stylish. She had an independent streak too. She often went out with her friends and did activities without her husband. Nowadays that doesn't sound that odd. But in the 50s, women were mostly their husband's appendage. So. Jean was a modern fucking lady. She took art lessons, and apparently she was quite the artist. She was a gifted harmonica player. She decorated one room in the house with things Arthur had brought back from the Far East, and she called it the Asian Room. She, like her husband, wanted the kids to know that there was a big world out there. She liked to garden, and she often cooked adventurous food for her family. In the book I read for this case, Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean by Richard Logan and Terry herself, they mentioned some of the adventurous and exotic foods that she served them. You guys ready for this? She served them pig's feet, fried green tomatoes, and most shocking, avocado. I read that, and for a second, I was like, What kind of bland-ass diet do these people have that those foods are adventurous? And then I remember this was the 50s. I guess those foods were exotic then, like how pineapple used to be an expensive exotic fruit. It's so fun to look back in 50, 60 years. I wonder what people think of our food habits. I said before that the family was athletic. Arthur, whom most people called Doc, that's so cute, He worked out a lot, and he loved to play golf. He and Brian had won a number of father-son golf tournaments over the years. Jean was also an excellent golfer. In 1960, she won their club's vice president cup, and she was the president of the club's women's organization. Doc had also recently gotten into handball, and he was great at that too. In early 61, he and a friend won the State Handball Doubles Championship. Their lives weren't all about sports, though. They were also very involved in their church and volunteering in community organizations like the YMCA and the JCS. For six years, Arthur was also the volunteer clerk at the kids' elementary school. Arthur also once spent hours digging out the family collie when he fell into a 10-foot trench. It's like reverse Lassie. He also once dove into the cold lake, fully clothed when a friend's daughter fell through her life ring. I take back what I said before. This guy did become Captain America. Holy shit. Despite being busy as fuck, Arthur was a devoted and present father. He was often the one to nurse the kids when they were sick. Although Jean was no slouch either. Twice as a girl, Terry Jo needed stitches, and Jean just did them herself. I had my aunt take stitches out of my knee, but I've never had someone who wasn't an MD give me stitches. Doc was also an avid sailor since he loved the water so much. He had friends with large sailboats that he learned how to sail while the family was out with friends. Doc also knew how to sail lightning sailboats. And he often did that with the kids. He even enjoyed ice boat sailing. This is dangerous as fuck because the boats go 50 to 60 miles an hour and you're navigating around ice. They can break and sink your ship. Point being, this will come up later, Doc is an experienced sailor. Just keep that in your back pocket. Let's talk about the kids. 14-year-old Brian was a freshman in high school. He was small for his age. Terry Joe was actually taller than him. I feel like girls always grow faster, and then the boys catch up to us, and then keep going. Because kids are dicks, Brian's classmates had started calling him shrimp, which he did not like. He started judo classes and became very muscular for his size, like his dad. Brian also played piano And he was an artist like his mother. Some of his drawings had won ribbons in local fairs. Brian also loved to build things. The family had a little workshop that Brian spent a lot of time in. He built an actual go-kart that his sisters and cousins enjoyed. He would even do little chemistry experiments that sometimes caused small explosions. Oops. Seven-year-old Renee was quiet and shy even around family. That could have just been her age, though. I feel like a lot of little kids are kind of shy. She was always smiling. She was more feminine than her older sister and preferred to wear dresses all the time. She liked dolls, playing dress-up, playing with neighborhood kids, just a happy little girl. 11-year-old Terry Jo was quiet like her sister She was a strong swimmer. She loved ice skating, water skiing, horseback riding. Unlike the rest of her family, she hated golf. Same girl. Most boring sport in the world. Have fun if you enjoy it, though. Terry Jo was not as social as the rest of her family and actually preferred to be alone. She did a lot of reading. She loved animals and kept a lot of them. She had rabbits, dogs, cats. She was constantly picking up strays and wild creatures and bringing them home. She had a pet cemetery where she would bury them, and she planted flowers on their graves. This is in Stephen King, so the pet cemetery's cute. Her idol was Tarzan. I love that. She loved the movies, and she even made herself a Tarzan-inspired loincloth. She sewed some animal skins to an old bathing suit and she often wore it while playing in the woods. She made fortresses in the woods and would spy on enemies from the bushes. This family sounds so fucking perfect, so you know something's going to happen. In 1960, Doc was feeling like he wasn't spending enough time with his family, and he knew if they didn't go on his dream sailing adventure soon, they'd never go. In the summer of 61, Doc found someone to take over his optometry practice for a year. Jean was going to tutor the kids. The family piled into two station wagons and went to Florida. The plan was to spend the fall on the sea, see how they liked it, and if they liked it, extend the trip to a year at sea. The family planned a short, one-week cruise through the Bahamas just to see how everyone adjusted. They chartered the Bluebell. I will post a picture of this boat because I am not good at visualizing sizes and distances. This was a 60-foot yacht designed to carry five to six passengers plus the skipper. 60 feet sounds massive to me, but when I looked at a picture of the boat, it didn't look that big. But then I was reading descriptions of the boat, and it sounded big. The skipper and his wife had a cabin, Arthur and Jean had a cabin, Terry, Joe, and Renee slept in one place, Brian slept in another, plus there's of course a bathroom, a kitchen, a dining area. I don't understand how it all fits. You look at the pictures, you figure it out. The Bluebell was owned by a man named Harold Pegg. That summer, just before the Duperalt set sail, Pegg hired Julian Harvey to be the skipper, Harvey was a 44-year-old retired Air Force lieutenant colonel who had flown bombers during the war. He and his wife, Mary Dean Jordan, who most people called Dean, were going to be with the Duperolds on their dream vacation. The Bluebell set sail for the week-long journey on Wednesday, November 8, 1961. Of the seven people on board, only two would survive the week. The trip was going great. The family was seeing all sorts of marine life. The boat would stop in different places and the family would swim. They snorkeled. They did some spear fishing. They were having the times of their fucking lives. They went on shore occasionally. One day they were in Sandy Point in the Bahamas. And Arthur told the commissioner how much fun they were all having. He said, quote, this has been a once in a lifetime vacation and we have thoroughly enjoyed it. We are going to come back and use Sandy Point as a winter resort. This is going great. In Sandy Point, that first time, Harvey ran into an old acquaintance, Napoleon Roberts. Roberts ended up coming on board the Bluebell and having dinner and just hanging out. He later told investigators that everyone seemed relaxed and there was no signs of anything you know, going wrong. No trouble or anything. The family left Sandy Point, went on around the Bahamas having a blast. A few days later, Sunday, November 12th, 1961, the family was back in Sandy Point because they were headed back to Florida. Mary Dean told the commissioner that another charter had already been arranged and they'd be back before Christmas. Doc ended up inviting a local fisherman Jimmy Wells on board for dinner. Dean made chicken cacciatore and salad. This would be the last meal ever served on the Bluebell. Jimmy later said everyone on the Bluebell was nice and having a wonderful time. It was a happy ship. The next day, Julian Harvey was spotted in that small dinghy by the Gulf Lion. The people who spotted him at first said he didn't seem to be waving or signaling them, but as they got closer, he waved. Harvey told the Gulf Lion crew that he was the sole survivor of a tragedy. In the middle of the previous night, a sudden squall had dismasted the boat, causing the mainmast to plunge down through the ship, holing the hole. If you don't speak sailor, a squall is a sudden and violent burst of wind that does occur out on the open ocean. Dismasted just means the mast came down, the mast being the pole. That hold up the sails, then the hole is the body of the boat. Basically, he's saying the wind caused the mast to come down. The mast went straight down through the ship, making a big hole. I'm sure you all know this, but holes in ships are not good. The main mast pulled down the other mast, and the other mast hit the cockpit, and the gas lines in the engine room ruptured, causing a big fire as the boat sank. He said everyone else was in the cockpit. Most of them were injured when the mast fell down, or they were trapped by the fire. He saw a few people jump overboard. Once he made it into the dinghy, he searched, but was only able to find little Renee floating face down in her life jacket. The captain immediately called the Coast Guard, who began an air and sea search for wreckage, bodies, other potential survivors. The Gulf Lion dropped Harvey off in Nassau, which is in the Bahamas. He immediately flew to Miami the next day. In Miami, he did contact the Coast Guard and was told to appear in two days on Thursday, November 16th. That Thursday at 9 a.m., an official inquiry began. The inquiry was being overseen by Lieutenant Ernest L. Murdoch and Captain Robert Barber, although Robert was not present at this point. Everyone said Harvey seemed to be in a good mood, which was a little weird since his wife was missing and presumed dead. But people do react to things differently. However, I will tell you right now that Julian Harvey is a piece of shit, so we can all judge him. He didn't give a fuck that his wife was dead. Harvey asked about the search. The search had turned up nothing, not even wreckage, which was a little odd. During his testimony, Harvey started stuttering. As we will learn when we talk about him shortly, Harvey had a stutter that seemed to get more pronounced when he was anxious, agitated, nervous. It's like Pinocchio's nose. Nobody thought it was odd at the time because he had just been through something very stressful. But as we know now, it's because he's a line sack of shit. Harvey began by explaining that he and Dr. Duperold had planned a two-day sale to cover the 200-mile route back to Florida, sailing both day and night with a couple of breaks of only a few hours. He said, quote, We set sail from Sandy Point on the east side of the Providence Channel shortly after dark Sunday night. It was our intention to stop for a few hours in the lee of Great Stirrup Cay, get three or four hours of sleep, then proceed to Great Isaac, anchor in the lee for a little more sleep, then reach Fort Lauderdale Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. When we left Sandy Point, the weather was good. There was a fresh breeze coming up about 15 knots. At night, I always travel with reduced canvas. I had the staysail up and the mainsail up. I did not have the mizzen or the flying jib up. Under this sail configuration, the Bluebell could easily carry 25 or 28 knots of wind without heeling over uncomfortably. She could carry more than that. In other words, that was a very safe, conservative sail plan. There were a few small rain squalls in the area. We encountered one of them about halfway between Sandy Point and Great Stirrup Cay. Because it had been such pleasant sailing with no power on, everyone was in the cockpit. It was a big roomy cockpit. The children were there with some minor bedding and were napping. Then this small squall hit us and a monstrous thing happened. In a 20 knot wind, the mainmast failed failed one fourth or one third of the distance above the deck. It was not a failure of stays. It was a failure of the wood in the mainmast. A 50 foot length of the mainmast came hurtling straight down, piercing the deck like it was made of paper. It was just like a telegraph pole going straight down on the deck. It tore through the one inch white pine of the deck and continued on down through the bottom of the hole. As it gained momentum, the stays from the mainmast to the mizzenmast gave a gigantic pull to the mizzen breaking it in at least two places. The mizzenmast collapsed among us in the cockpit. The collapse of the entire rig reduced us to a bare hole wallowing in the sea. Harvey was stuttering even more by this point. Because he's full of shit. He continued, quote, Fortunately, no one was hit directly by the falling mizzen's, but my wife and Dr. Duperold were cut on the legs by splinters. I was steering at the time and I started the engine and left it at slow ahead to give us control. I briefly checked the wounded and told everyone to sit fast and not to panic that I was going forward to get the cable cutters and get rid of the cables around us. I ran forward, clearing my way through the debris, went below in the forecastle and finally got the cutters. Emerging from the forecastle forward, I saw the fire had started in the cockpit area Everyone had moved away from the cock- from the flames and were close to the gas tanks. At this point, Harvey was scared there'd be an explosion. Yeah, because I'm sure three intelligence adults went and stood above the gas tanks in a fire. He's apparently the only one with a brain. I'm so sure. Harvey said he grabbed the fire extinguishers, but they were of no use next to the giant fire that had started because now flames were shooting up from vents in the cockpit. There was also water pouring in from the hole the mast had made. Everyone else was just staring dumbly at all this. Harvey dropped the dinghy in the life draft, and when they saw him do this, everyone jumped into the sea so he could be the hero and come rescue them. Once he was in the dinghy, he could hear shouting, but he couldn't see anything. He had a carbide water light, but it didn't work, so he threw it overboard. He screamed for survivors until he was hoarse, guys but he found no one except little renée floating face down in the water he tried cpr but she was already gone he estimated that he stayed there for almost 2 hours looking for survivors then he just began began drifting and was rescued the next day i'm not a sailor and an actual sailor is going to rip his story apart in a second but even as a non-sailor this story smells like bullshit my biggest problem with his story Is the mast falling straight down vertically? That's literally not how wind and gravity work. So I already don't like this story from the jump. Lieutenant Murdoch didn't like it either. One of the main problems for him, like me, is the mast falling straight down. He also didn't buy that all the passengers stood near the fire and the gas tank instead of moving to the front like Harvey did. Based on where they were, A lighthouse was nearby, why didn't the lighthouse see the flames of this huge fire? The dinghy also had sails, and yet Harvey had not used them to sail to the nearest island. Instead, he was just drifting, worrying he might float into the Gulf Stream. Make it make sense, sir. He had an answer for the sails, though. He said he didn't use the sails because he was afraid the boat would tip since he was towing the life raft. They asked why he didn't use his flares. He said there were some in the emergency kit on the boat, but they were buried deep in the kit, and also he didn't think of them at the time. What? You're in the middle of the ocean, an experienced sailor, and you didn't think of flares? I thought of flares, and I've never been on a sailboat. Also, you might die on this small boat, but you can't be bothered to dig into the kit to retrieve the flares. Makes no fucking sense. He didn't radio for help because when the mast fell straight down, it also took out the antenna. This guy just has the worst look. About that flashlight of his, the carbide water light. I wasn't sure what that was, so I'm going to tell you. A carbide water light was a lamp with two chambers, an upper one that contained water, and a lower one that contained chunks of calcium carbide. Allowing water to slowly drip on the carbide produced the flammable gas acetylene, I think I said that right, which burned brightly enough that it was a standard seaborne emergency light until fairly recently. These also used to be used for mining, spelunking. The seaborne carbide water light was ignited by a plunger with a steel head striking a flint and creating a spark. The plug that released the water onto the carbide was easy to see and easy to pull. Murdoch asked Harvey if he had pulled the plug. Harvey said, quote, I could see nothing to pull. I'd been told that all you had to do is put it in the water. I just threw it overboard. Murdoch thought this was complete horseshit. Like I said, this was standard equipment on large crafts, and pretty much all sailors knew how they worked. Murdoch asked how much experience Harvey had with these kinds of crafts. Harvey replied that he'd owned and operated crafts like the Bluebell since 54, and had sailed extensively in the Bahamas. But he doesn't know how a standard sea flashlight works. Cool. Not suspicious at all. Harvey also claimed that he left Doc at the wheel after the fire broke out, and Doc kept steering right into the wind, causing the fire to blow back on everyone. Yeah, cause a smart guy like Doc would do that. You don't even have to be a sailor, or even smart to know that you would turn out of the wind. We learn as children. Fire hot, fire hurt. But sure, the guy just let his family keep getting fired on. Also, don't forget that Doc was an experienced fucking sailor. After Harvey's testimony, the owner of the Bluebell, Harold Pegg, was to come up and testify. Before he could start, though... Captain Barber rushed into the room while Harvey had been testifying. Terry Joe had been found alive and rescued. Harvey, upon hearing this news, said, Oh my God. Then he looked down for a bit, looked back up and said, Isn't that wonderful? He left immediately, didn't stay for any other testimony. Just high it out of there. Not suspicious at all. Terry Joe had been rescued by a Greek freighter called Captain Theo. The second officer on the ship spotted her. He thought it was a white cap, but it never disappeared. Then he thought it must have been a dinghy or a raft, but then he realized one of those couldn't be so far out. The ship got closer and realized it wasn't a dinghy at all. It was a small life float with a blonde little girl on it. She was wearing pink petal pushers and a white top. She waved feebly up at them. One of the sailors took a picture, which I will post. The picture was everywhere. Wait until you see this raft. It had netting at the bottom, and this little girl survived on it for three and a half days. The sailors were afraid to use their lifeboat because they didn't want to tip her float, so they made a makeshift raft with oil drums, went out to get her, pulled her up onto the ship. Her lips were puffy, cheeks were sunken, skin was all burned, she couldn't stand up. They placed her in an empty bed. These sailors gave her water and orange juice. They sponged her burned body. They put Vaseline on her lips. I love the idea of these hardened sailors sweetly sponging off this little girl and putting Vaseline on her lips. Humans can be sweet when they want to be They said she was almost comatose, didn't speak. They weren't sure she could see them even though her eyes were open. She did finally manage to say Bluebell and her name. The captain sent the following telegraph to the Coast Guard in Miami, picked up blonde girl, brown eyes, from small white raft, suffering exposure and shock, named Terry Joe Duperle, was on Bluebell. This was the news the captain had received before he ran into the inquiry. Terry Joe was picked up by a Coast Guard helicopter and taken to a Miami hospital for treatment. Murdoch and Barber placed a guard at Terry Joe's room because Harvey's testimony had rubbed them the wrong fucking way. As it turned out, they didn't need to be worried about Julian Harvey harming Terry Joe or any other innocent people. The next morning at the Sandman Motel, room 17, just before noon, a housekeeper knocked on the door. No one answered, so she let herself in. Blah. No one answered, so she let herself in. There was a little bit of an odd smell, but didn't really register with her at first. I'm sure hotel housekeepers have smelled and seen it all. That's one job I would never want. I don't think I could do it. First time I found doo somewhere, I'd be out. The housekeeper also noticed a small splotch of blood on one of the beds. She went to the bathroom to get the towels, but she couldn't open the bathroom door. It wasn't locked, but something was in front of it, so she couldn't get it open. That's when she realized the smell was stronger, and then she realized the smell was blood. She began screaming, and the manager came. The manager couldn't get the door open either, so he called the police. The young patrolman that arrived was able to get the door open enough to stick his head in. There, on the tile floor, was the blood-soaked body of Julian Harvey. After he had left the Coast Guard building, Harvey had taken his suitcase out of his car, taken a cab to the motel around 11 a.m., and checked in as John Monroe. He went upstairs with his suitcase and a small brown paper bag. He was never seen alive again. Based on evidence at the scene, Police were able to piece together what had happened. The paper bag had contained whiskey bottles, as they found empty ones in the trash. He wrote a letter to his friend James Boozer. He wrote about his love for his 14-year-old son. No mention of the other kid. He asked that his son be adopted by the family that was watching him in Miami. Hmm. Nice that he cares about this one, but, you know, doesn't give a shit about the other kid. Also... This kid doesn't have a mother, and it's definitely your fucking fault. We'll get to it. He ended the letter with, I'm a nervous wreck and just can't continue. I'm going out now. I guess I either don't like life or don't know how to what to do with it. He made no reference to the Bluebell or Terry Joe. On the back of the envelope, he wrote, Cremate and Barry at sea. But then he crossed out pre-cremate, So it just said, bury at sea. He was later buried at sea as requested. I think they should have put him on the curb with the rest of the garbage, but I wasn't in charge. The police conjectured that first, he thought he'd kill himself on the bed. Sitting there with his back against the headboard, he cut into a vein in his thigh with a double-edged razor. But as the first drop of blood stained the sheet, he'd apparently decided that was not the way. He pulled on his trousers, moved toward the bathroom. He paused, turned back, and put a $10 bill on the pillow. Something for the maid, like an apology or something. You know, he just has to make himself look good till the very end. Again, he turned toward the bathroom. Again, he stopped. Blood was spreading down his pants. He went to his briefcase, got two pictures out. One was his son, Lance. One was his wife, Mary Dean. He carried them into the bathroom, propped them up on the back of the toilet so he could see them. Then he did what he set out to do. He slashed his ankles, his wrist, his forearms, his thigh, and even both sides of his neck. Police said it was a horrific scene. He was slashed so badly on the thighs that deep muscle was laid open to the bone and his body had been completely drained of blood no one had ever seen so many cuts or such extremely deep ones on a suicide before this was unspeakably violent why had julian harvey killed himself was it related to the bluebell the only person who could provide answers now was 11-year-old terry joe terry joe however Was in a coma. She'd been rescued, sure, but that didn't mean she'd survive. Her heartbeat was too fast, too erratic, very weak. Dehydration had damaged her kidney function. Her temperature was too high, her blood pressure too low. Doctors said it would be at least 36 hours before they could accurately assess her condition. There was still the threat of massive organ failure, pneumonia heart fibrillations. Kids bounce back quicker than adults though and Terry Jo woke up two days later. Her kidneys and heart were functioning. That day she was given a small portion and she ate with no problems. On Sunday they moved her up to a regular diet. Still no problems. Gifts were pouring in from around the country. Offers to adopt her were pouring in. Even her doctor offered to adopt her. She never spoke about the accident. No one asked her about it. After a few more days, she was finally allowed to speak to the Coast Guard investigators. Murdoch and Barbara interviewed her. And would you believe that her story didn't match Julian Harvey's story at all? She told them that that night she had gone to bed around 9. Her sister usually slept with her, but Renee stayed in the cockpit with everyone else and was going to sleep with their mom that night, since Doc was going to stay on deck and drive the ship throughout the night with Harvey. She woke in the middle of the night, but not from a squall or the mast breaking. She woke up to hear her brother screaming, Help, Daddy, help. After the scream, she heard running and stomping noises. She was frozen in fear in her bed, she said. Of course she was. I'm a grown-ass adult, and I'd be frozen in fear in that moment. She's 11. After a few minutes of silence, she finally decided to leave her cabin and see what was going on. In the hallway, she saw her mother and brother crumpled in a pool of blood. She knew immediately that they were dead. 11 years old, and you're seeing that? Had you not just give up right then? She climbed the stairs saw more blood on the deck and possibly a knife. She turned toward the front of the boat and saw Harvey rushing toward her. His lazy right eye that we will talk about was rolling around like crazy. And he had the face of a nightmare, she said. She tried to say what's happening, but he shoved her back down the steps and said, get back down there. She went and huddled on her bed wrapped up in the blankets. I just want to give her a little hug, and I hate hugs. She heard water sloshing, and she wondered if the captain was washing blood from the deck. After a few minutes, oily-smelling water began to come into her cabin. Even though the ship was filling with water, she was still too afraid to move. Then, Harvey appeared in her doorway. He just stared at her. He was holding what she was pretty sure was the rifle they had brought on board. She said he stood there for what felt like ages, and all she could hear was his breathing and her heart beating. Then he just turned and walked away. Next, she heard erratic pounding noises from somewhere in the boat, and then she didn't hear anything again. The oily water was reaching her mattress now, so she had to leave and go back up on deck. She got up there and saw in the light from the top of the mast that the ship's dinghy and rubber life raft had been launched and were floating beside the boat on the port side. She asked if the ship was sinking. Harvey screamed yes. Then he handed her a line and told her to hold it. She was numb from shock and so didn't grab the line. It slipped through her fingers. Harvey came back and said, the dinghy is gone. As the line he'd handed her was for the dinghy. He immediately dove overboard, leaving a scared 11-year-old on a sinking ship in the middle of the ocean. Real winner, this guy. She remembered the life float at the top of the cabin that was just above the water at this point. This life float that she ends up riding for days was a two and a half foot by five foot oblong ring of canvas colored canvas-covered, excuse me, cork, with rope webbing in the middle that was designed to be held onto for a few hours by survivors, not ridden on, for days. It looks like a pool floaty, but flimsier. This float was tied to the boat by four knots. This child managed to stay calm and undo all of the knots. I would have died I'm not good with knots and ropes and tying and untying. When he jumped overboard, my dumbass probably would have followed him, and then he would have drowned me. She undid these knots while the ship she was standing on was literally sinking beneath her. This is like the scenes in Titanic when the boat starts sinking. Controversial side opinion here. I don't like that movie that much. I saw it once on TV, and I was like, Okay. But I do think they could have shared the door. It's a door, right? I don't know. They both could have lived. That's my point. Back to the story. As the bluebell went under, the float actually got caught on a line, and Terry Joe and the float were pulled under. Somehow, though, the float came loose and she didn't drown. She huddled low on the float because she was scared Harvey might be out there looking for her. But she heard and saw nothing. Interesting because he said he was shouting for survivors for hours. Cool story, bro. Terry Joe said the mast was up, the deck was well lit, and there was no fire or smoke. There was no squall. It was a clear and peaceful night. After the bluebell sank, it did rain briefly, and she was able to catch some of the rain in her mouth. This float. Like I said, it has the webbed bottom. So part of her was always sitting in the water and she had to balance just right on it or it would tip over. Her first day at sea, Monday, at first the sun felt good, nice and warm from the night. But then the day got hotter and hotter. So she started to burn because she has no protection. She's in pedal pushers and a thin white blouse. She tried to submerge more of her body in the water in the webbing, but some of the webbing broke. More webbing would break in the coming days. The hole in the webbing made it easier for fish to bite her legs and butt. Two fish stayed with her the whole time, nibbling. I'm sure this wasn't like those fish pedicures where the fish eat the dead skin off of your feet. I think these fish were out for blood. She didn't feel hungry or thirsty because she was in shock. The salt actually made her burn faster, and the salt on her lips made her thirstier. She actually saw a ship that first day and waved, but they didn't see her. She would see more ships in the coming days. The problem was that her low white float just looked like part of the ocean unless she were really close. Terry Joe did manage to fall asleep that first night, despite the freezing cold. She woke up in the ocean. She had fallen off the float. Can you imagine just waking up in the ocean? Luckily, her arm was draped over the float, so she was able to pull herself back up onto it. Tuesday, the second day, that's the day Harvey was rescued. So now, Terry Joe is seeing planes. Flying overhead searching for survivors. She waved and waved. She even took her shirt off to wave more. None of them saw her. I can't even imagine being so close to rescue and yet so far. I would feel so hopeless. That day, the swells in the water were around eight feet high. She had to balance on a float that's not designed for sitting in eight foot waves. And she did it. She drifted into a massive school of fish where sharks and barracudas were feeding. She knew bright colors attract barracudas, so she was scared her pink pants would attract them. Luckily for her, when the bluebell sank, there had been an oil slick from the engine, so her pants weren't that pink anymore. She was followed by a pair of what we believe were pilot whales. They are a type of dolphin. They are predators who mostly hunt squid. Terry Jo did not feel threatened by them. She later said their presence made her feel safe, like they were keeping her company. At night, it was freezing, but she was suffering heat exhaustion. She fell asleep that second night, but had vivid, hallucinatory dreams and nightmares. Wednesday, day three on the ocean. It got hot quickly that day. There were no clouds. More of the webbing broke. This is when things started getting bad. Terry Jo started hallucinating. She even saw the classic desert oasis with the water. She eventually slipped into unconsciousness and had convulsions. The sea was rougher that day, with swells getting up to 13 feet high. Somehow this half-conscious little girl stayed on the raft. That night, as the temperature outside dropped, so did her internal temperature. Lack of water had slowed her circulation. Her body was on fire from the terrible sunburn. Her legs were cramping because she had no electrolytes, and she had to maintain such an awkward position on the raft. She spent that night drifting in and out of consciousness. By Thursday, Her blood pressure was down. Her temperature was likely around 105 degrees Fahrenheit. She was near death. She was about to die. She spent most of the day unconscious as the raft was tossed around. Her kidneys had completely shut down at this point. Her brain was shutting down, and all remaining fluids were going to her heart and lungs. This is making me thirsty. Damn. She saw a shadowy figure approaching and managed a slight wave. It was the Captain Theo, and she was rescued. That's a fucking impressive story. How did she balance in those waves? I can barely balance on a float in the swimming pool. Then add the fact that she was dying from dehydration at the same time. Humans are amazing. Our capacity to survive never ceases to amaze. Terry Joe's recovery was going so well that by Thanksgiving, she was able to eat a full turkey dinner, all the trimmings and everything. She still never talked about the accident, never cried or asked about her family, although she later said that it was years before she accepted that her father had died that night. Terry Joe talked to the Coast Guard one more time in the hospital. She told them the same story. The Coast Guard knew she was telling the truth. She had no reason to lie. Terry Joe was released from the hospital before the end of November. The press was told she was being released in the afternoon, but she was actually snuck out a back door in the morning. Good. Leave that baby alone. She went back to Wisconsin, where she lived with her aunt and uncle. Terry Joe's story was soon everywhere. People were shocked that Julian Harvey had murdered his wife and almost an entire family. Harold Pegg, the owner of the Bluebell, who had been present at Harvey's testimony, said he knew Harvey was lying from the beginning. He'd had the ship inspected, and there was nothing wrong with the mast. Previous owners said the same thing. One previous owner had even ridden out a hurricane in the boat, and the mast never broke. Harold Pegg also knew that the fire story was bullshit, The Bluebell had a state-of-the-art fire suppression system. There was a large CO2 bottle in the engine room. If you pulled the release in the cockpit, the CO2 would go into the engine and the engine room, and it would have deprived the fire of oxygen. Julian Harvey knew about this system and knew how it worked because Harold Pegg had shown it to him himself. Sailors on the Gulf Lion were a little suspicious of him as well, He told them that people were killed instantly when the masks came down, but at the hearing he said they were just injured. Crew said he didn't seem upset about his wife, didn't ask to contact anyone. He also seemed really concerned that they might search the area and seemed relieved when they didn't. He didn't have any blood on him, even though he had helped all these bloody people. He said the seawater must have washed it away. Neither he nor Renee smelled like smoke. The flares that he claimed were buried deep in the kit were on top in plain sight. Seemed like he hadn't wanted to be found so close to the wreckage, a.k.a. evidence of his crimes. He may have had a motor attached to the dinghy that he threw overboard. He traveled around eight miles in half a day, and Terry Joe only traveled about 18 in three and a half days. Clearly, he had some kind of propulsion going on. There were marks from a motor on the dinghy, and they looked fresh. When they were rescuing him, one crew member of the Gulf Lion even said that it looked like a gas can was sinking behind him. The Gulf Lion gave him fresh clothes, but he refused to change his salt-stained pants. He went to a hotel after arriving in Nassau, And a worker who went in to help him get settled said there was wet money laid out on the bed to dry. Not sure how much. There was a 50, lots of 20s, 10s, 5s, 1s. It covered the entire bed, though. Friends later said he had a habit of hiding money in the lining of his pants, which is weird. When he arrived in the Bahamas, he had given the port director a written statement of events. The director thought there were a lot of loopholes and wanted to talk to Harvey, but he hightailed it back to Miami the very next day. Harvey also had scratches on his arms that he said were from the wires, but most people thought they looked like fingernail scratches. These things are all suspicious as fuck, but where's the motive? An anonymous caller called Mary Dean's brother, Harry Jordan, and told him to check traveler's insurance in Miami. Sure enough, Harvey had taken out a $20,000 insurance policy on his wife with him as beneficiary right before the Bluebell had set sail. There was also a double indemnity clause that would have made the payout 40000 in the event of an accidental death. That'd be the equivalent of a little over 400000 today. There's our motive. Oldest one in the fucking book. Money. I've said it before and I'll say it again. No amount of money is worth killing someone for. Based on Terry Joe's statements, the likely chain of events is as follows. Harvey decided to stab his wife quietly in their cabin for the insurance money. The plan was to kill her, secretly dump her body overboard, and then declare that she was missing in the morning. She fought back, though, and scratched him. Doc heard the commotion, so he came to see what was wrong, and Harvey stabbed him. Jean rushed toward Doc, and Harvey tries to stab her. Jean then rushed back to Renee to protect her. Renee was clubbed or fell and hit her head. Wounded, Jean fell or staggered down the steps, with Harvey following. Brian hears, wakes up screaming for his father, unaware that his father's already dead. His screams wake up Terry Joe, who stays in her bed for a few minutes. Harvey stabs Brian, leaves him next to his mother in a pool of blood. Then he goes to the engine room to open the valve to sink the ship. Goes back up on deck. Drops the sails so the boat is dead. Fills the dinghy with some supplies, a motor, gas can. Puts Doc's body in his cabin with Dean. He would have wanted to put the bodies inside, that way they wouldn't float away and somebody would find them. This is when Terry Joe came up and saw the blood, saw him preparing to leave. The hammering sound she heard was the dinghy hitting the side of the boat as it was lowered. Harvey came down to get the rifle, maybe some cash. This is when he stopped in her doorway, thought about killing her, but decided she'd probably drown anyway. He went up to leave the ship. Terry Joe reappeared. He handed her the line while he went to get a weapon to kill her. When he came back and she had dropped the line, he decided to save himself, dove overboard. Terry Joe didn't hear the motor because he used the sails that night as there was little wind. Later, he used the motor and ditched it before being rescued. This all fits and is likely what happened, but was Julian Harvey really the type of guy who would kill all of these people for money, as it turns out, Julian Harvey had a history of doing similar things. Julian Harvey was born in nineteen seventeen in New York. His parents divorced when he was one, and his chorus girl mother raised him on her own until he was six. Then his mom married a well-known vaudeville producer. They were now rich, and his stepfather gave him his own sailboat when he was ten, and he fell in love with sailing. Unfortunately, Hollywood and the Great Depression killed Vaudeville and his parents became impoverished. He was sent to live with his aunt and uncle in Scarsdale. The uncle was a prominent banker at a leading New York bank, aka he was loaded. They doted on Harvey, especially his aunt. She didn't think he could do anything wrong. Nobody was ever good enough for him. Not a good attitude for a parent to have. Don't don't put your kids on a pedestal like that. Julian Harvey had a stammer that, like I said before, got worse when he was nervous or upset. Same with his lazy eye. The right eye would roll badly if he was stressed or nervous. The human body is so strange and interesting. I've never heard of someone's lazy eye getting worse due to stress. Fascinating. He started working out as a teenager and gained a lot of confidence. Female classmates later said he was gorgeous, dreamy, and sweet. Male classmates were less impressed. They said he was a good athlete, but he was a show-off. He did get married while in high school, but his aunt and uncle had it annulled quickly. He graduated in 1937. His first job was as a door-to-door salesman, but he couldn't control his stammer. He ended up getting a job as a male model with the Powers Agency. In 1939, he decided he wanted to go to college. He started at the University of North Carolina to study engineering, and then he transferred to Purdue the following year. In August 1941, he dropped out and signed up for the Army Air Corps. He didn't want to get drafted as a foot soldier, plus he told his friends that the Air Corps was where all the glory was. With his military service, Harvey has a lot of similarities to Arthur Duperold. It's kind of eerie how much their stories are similar. Except Arthur was a stand-up guy and Julian Harvey turned into a murderous piece of shit. Their paths diverged at some point. Harvey became an air cadet and he did well at it. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant. War had broken out by this point and he flew out in Florida looking for Nazi subs. Harvey went to a dance where he met 17-year-old Ethel Fole, and she was smitten. They were married a few months later. After the Bluebell incident, she told reporters that she had never met someone who came so close to being her ideal man. But she was young, and she later said that he was conceited and proud of his body and he had a cold side. Despite that, she was shocked to hear he'd murdered people. In the fall of 1942, Harvey went to England to fly planes on bombing missions. Once his plane was badly shot up, but instead of having everyone evacuate, he managed to land the damaged plane, and everyone was fine. Superiors raved about him, but Pierce thought he was accident-prone because he had two other crash landings. In 1943, he was transferred to Libya to fly missions across the Mediterranean against Nazi-controlled Southern Europe. He was one of the pilots slated to fly in the famous and ultimately very costly raid on the oil fields in Romania. However, official records of that raid show that Harvey's B-24 aborted and returned to Libya because of engine trouble. This was not the first time he'd aborted a mission— leading to whispers about him among his fellow pilots. His supervisors didn't seem to notice. While he was overseas, Ethel had given birth to Julian Jr. She lived with Harvey's aunt and uncle, but his aunt made it very clear that Ethel was not good enough for her perfect nephew. She was so rude to Ethel that Ethel and the baby moved into their own apartment. In January 1944, Harvey was transferred back to Florida. It was at this time that he told Ethel he didn't love her anymore and he wanted a divorce. They were divorced in early 1945. Now that's fine. You don't love someone get a fucking divorce. But I don't think he ever saw their son either. That's fucked up. That's your kid. That kid even has your fucking name and you just never had anything to do with him. What a piece of shit. But then in your suicide note, you're going to talk about how much you love your other kid. Fuck you. Harvey was transferred to a few different bases for the next few years. Most soldiers said he was an excellent pilot, but he was egotistical as hell. That sounds like Top Gun. Isn't he full of himself? I saw that movie once on TV. I think he was egotistical though, right? I don't know. Harvey was finally given an administrative role at the Pentagon. See? Just like Arthur Duperalt. Harvey did not like being at a desk, and he went back to school. He graduated from Purdue with a degree in aeronautical engineering in 1948. It was around this time that he met Joan Bolin. She was 10 years his junior, and she became his third wife. Their son, Lance, was born in 1948. That's the other son he had I mentioned in his suicide note. Guess he cared about this one? The family was transferred back to Florida. In Florida, Harvey had multiple affairs. Joe knew about them, but he got angry when she asked him about them, so I think she just kind of ignored them. On April 21st, 1949, Julian Harvey was driving his wife and mother-in-law back home after going to the movies. They were on a bridge, and he was driving safely and slowly, and the car suddenly veered right for no reason he pulled it left and he overcorrected causing the car to go through the railing and into the water below he was able to get his door open while the car was falling and jump out and swim to safety the two women never came up he didn't help look for him either he just stood on the bridge while others dove in he was even heard bragging about how easy it was for him to jump out since he had experienced test-crashing planes. Divers found the car, and all the doors were shut, but the driver's side window was rolled down. Hmm. Suspicious. His father-in-law demanded an investigation, but there was no evidence, so nothing happened. Shortly after the crash, Harvey collected on his wife's life insurance. This man murdered the mother of his child for money. And within weeks, he was living with another woman. In 1950, Harvey was transferred to San Antonio, where he met his fourth wife, Jitty. They were married in late 1950. He told her she was his second wife, not his fourth wife, because he's a liar. She later said that he was conceited and loved only himself and he had a violent temper. His temper must have been bad because one friend of hers even asked if she was sure she was safe with him. Luckily, Jitty didn't spend too much time with him because he was sent to Korea for two years. When he came back, he told her that he didn't love her and he wanted a divorce. They were divorced in 1953. Things did not go well for him in Korea. He was more nervous and anxious. His stammer was back and it got worse when he briefed lower-ranking soldiers. His right eye was rolling like crazy. He developed some facial tics. Everyone thought he had extreme anxiety. He also experienced more engine failures than anyone else. Superiors were impressed that he was able to land with no engines, but other soldiers said he would turn the engine off and glide into base on purpose. He's an all-around asshole. When he came back from Korea, he was given another position at the Pentagon because they didn't really trust his anxious ass to fly planes anymore. This is when he met his fifth wife. Who does he think he is, Elizabeth Taylor? His fifth wife's name was Georgiana, and she was not like the other wives. She spoke six languages, had a strong personality, and didn't just stay at home while he was sleeping around. They bought a 68-foot boat in 1954 called the Torbatross. Harvey dreamed of being a shipmaster. It was like his second career. Within a year, though, with Harvey driving, the Torbatross ran aground on the wreck of the World War I battleship Texas in Chesapeake Bay. The Torby sank. Since the battleship was a wreck for which the Coast Guard and therefore the federal government was responsible, Harvey sued for damages, alleging that the wreck was not adequately marked. After a prolonged and controversial court case, he was given a settlement on top of collecting the insurance money for the Torby. I'm sensing a pattern. People who were on the ship at the time of the crash said that the wreck was marked and he had ran into it intentionally. He was transferred back to Florida. They used some of their insurance money to buy an 81-foot boat. Called the Valiant. Him and Georgiana and Lance sailed around the Gulf Coast. Everything's going swell. Then he was sent to California to serve as the assistant to the commander at a flight school. They didn't trust him to fly anymore. However, he did get to fly once in a while because you have to fly every so often to keep your certification and your flight pay. On one flight, he had to evacuate and he hurt himself on some farm equipment. When he was picked up by a military ambulance, he was in great pain and screaming hysterically. This reaction was completely out of character for him, far beyond his previous tics and anxieties and stammering. People said it was a sign he'd really lost it. He raged about his entire life It'd been too violent. He'd had everything happen to him that could happen to a pilot except getting killed. He was sick of it. Like, he was, I don't know. Something was wrong there. In the hospital, he was treated for severe anxiety and given sedatives to control the anxiety and the severe twitching that was now plaguing his entire body. While in the hospital, he finally told a couple of colleagues that he actually began to, as he put it, crack up in 1952 in Korea. In March 1958, Harvey was given a medical discharge from the Air Force with a pension based on the rank of major, since his rank of lieutenant colonel had never been made permanent. He was pissed about this. He refused to accept it, took it up the chain of command, and he finally managed to get a retirement package based on the lieutenant colonel rank. I hate to admit this, but I agree with him on this one. You had him working at that rank for years. You never made it permanent, probably for this exact reason. Fuck that. All employers be trying to pull shit, even the military. In 1958, Georgiana filed for divorce, citing extreme mental cruelty. I feel bad for her, whatever was going on. While the divorce case was pending, Harvey took the Valiant to Cuba. A few miles offshore, it burned and sank. Harvey was picked up by a passing boat. He told how a fire broke out that quickly became a raging inferno and he barely escaped. Once again, he collected on the insurance. How do people like this keep getting claims payouts, yet people with actual claims have to fight to get their payouts? Years later, one of Harvey's friends said that Harvey set the fire himself because he was in a financial jam and needed the money. He then bought a 70-foot boat called the White Swan. He began a lucrative charter business in the Bahamas. He took a trip to Cuba, and there were rumors that he smuggled guns and ammunition to Fidel Castro, but I don't know if that's true. He sold the White Swan in 59, and started working as a deckhand on another ship. At the time, insurance investigators were gathering evidence on a boat-sinking racket that had cost their companies millions. The racket involved owners leasing their craft to men who arranged for them to sink accidentally so the owners could collect the insurance. Some owners reportedly made double deals with men who made additional big money running refugees from Cuba. They'd take trips to Cuba to bring out well-to-do refugees, then sink the boats before they became too well-known to the Coast Guard. It was a lucrative racket for all involved, because I guess it was really easy to insure a boat for more than it was worth. One insurance investigator, looking into what became known as Sinking Inc., said that everywhere we went, we were always running into the name of julian harvey he was a known companion of many of the suspicious characters he was associated with owners and workers on boats that apparently were sunk for profit point being it is not at all hard to fathom that he would kill his wife and entire family for money he was a big old piece of shit terry joe had survived her run-in with julian harvey but her life was not easy. She was raised by her aunt and uncle. Her grandma lived there too. They all loved her. And Terry Jo spent a lot of time with her grandmother. Unfortunately, to protect her, the family never talked about what happened. And all friends were instructed not to bring it up. Terry Jo never saw a therapist. Even though she definitely had PTSD. Not a lot was known about PTSD back then. And Terry said she understands They were just doing what they thought was best. The family sold her old home, and the only thing she took from it was her Tarzan loincloth. A lawsuit was brought against Harold Pegg, the owner of the Bluebell, because he'd hired Julian Harvey as a master, even though Harvey did not have a master's license. The settlement was large enough for Terry to get a trust fund. She wanted to kind of escape the Terry Joe name, it was so tied to the trauma. Everyone knew it. So she changed her name to Terry when she was 12. Now her name is spelled T E R E, completely dropped the Joe. It's just Terry. She felt lost, and I think this was one thing she could control. In high school, she did finally see a therapist. She saw him a few times, but even the therapist never talked to her about what had happened on the Bluebell. Kind of defeats the point of that therapy. Terry was just, like I said, feeling very lost. She wasn't sure what she was looking for. She traveled. She tried different college programs. She married her first husband after only knowing him a few weeks. Their daughter, Brooke, was born in 1974. The marriage didn't last, but she remains close to his family, which I think is awesome. She had two children with her second husband, Blair and Brian named after her brother. The family went to Germany because her husband was in the military. And 19 years after the fact, Terry finally talked to a psychiatrist and let everything out. She said it was very healing, gave her a lot of clarity and security. She ended up leaving her husband in Germany and coming back home. She married a third man, whose name she does not like to say, so I won't be saying it. He turned out to be a pedophile. Luckily, he didn't touch her kids, but they said he made them uncomfortable. Fuck that guy. Anything with kids, I hope you die. In the 80s, Terry finally found a job she loved in the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. She eventually switched to a job with water regulation and zoning. She became friends with her boss, Ron, and eventually they realized they were in love. They've been together since 1995. They're retired and live on the shore of Lake Michigan. She has grandchildren. She's doing really well, and all because she survived on a raft for almost four days as a little girl. Really cool thing about this case is that countless other people have been saved because of Terry. At the end of the Coast Guard report of the Bluebell, it was recommended that all life-saving apparatuses and buoyancy devices be painted or otherwise colored international orange, which has been the norm for decades now. Orange is much easier to see on the sea. All those people saved thanks to little Terry Joe. This one has a great ending, even though there was a lot of murder. Next week, we'll be back on land. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Follow the podcast on Instagram at Have Murder Will Travel. I always post pictures related to the case. Follow the podcast on Facebook at Have Murder Will Travel Podcast. You can send me an email at at travel at gmail.com. Tune in next week to see where we travel next. Until then, don't forget to explore the world and stay alive. Bye.